Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kangasa. This is the first of six podcast episodes on genocide. The goal is to break the overwhelming silence around the problem of genocide in our day and age. There are a lot of reasons why so many of us remain silent even in the face of mounting evidence that a new genocide may be occurring somewhere in the world right now. Today's guest is Dr. Maria Chamberlain. Dr. Chamberlain is an honorary fellow at the University of Edinburgh and the daughter of two Holocaust survivors. She was born in Krakow, Poland and emigrated to the UK with her parents in 1958 at the age of 11. The family settled in Edinburgh, where she still lives. Maria pursued an academic career as a biologist, researching plant and fungal biology and teaching undergraduates at the University of Edinburgh. Following her retirement from full-time teaching, Maria put pen to paper, reciting for several years and meticulously piecing together the story of her two Jewish families in Nazi-occupied Poland during the Holocaust. The result is a book, Never Tell Anyone You're Jewish, My Family, The Holocaust and the Aftermath. The book is a powerful, compelling and personal testimony and witness, which we will all do well to read and reflect upon. In this episode, we discuss the topic, genocide, why it is important to bear witness. Dr. Maria Chamberlain, welcome. Now, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm honoured and delighted to be here and speak with you. On page 212 of your book, Never Tell Anyone You're Jewish, you write, and I quote, The other thing that Nella taught me on our walks in the woods was the joy of foraging for mushrooms. As a country girl, she was an expert and knew not only which ones were good and which poisonous, but also the best ways to cook and preserve them. It was without a doubt this early experience with her that later inspired me to study fungi professionally and to continue to consider foraging as one of my favourite pastimes. Please talk to us about Nella and your early childhood experience in Poland. And how have these childhood experiences with special reference to your mother and father colored the woman you have subsequently become? I had a really happy childhood in Poland. Uh, my parents both worked and when I was three, they hired uh, Nella. Nella was uh, a country girl, I called her Anielcia, 
and she looked after me while my parents worked. Uh, but unlike my parents, whose lives were tainted uh, by trauma, Nella was a breath of fresh country air. She cleaned, she baked, she looked after me, and um, she I loved her. Every summer, my parents uh, would dispatch Nella and me to the foothills of the Tatras. That's the mountains near Krakow. <clears throat> and it was there that Nella introduced me to mushrooming, uh, finding a set even now, never fails to bring me joy. That's almost visceral. It's, it's such fun. Um, Nella also taught me to read the landscape as a country girl. She really knew her trees. She knew uh, her mushrooms and she knew quite a lot of flowers too. And uh, uh, she taught me to read the landscape and it's a skill that I try to now instill in my, to my students because we town people now seem to have lost it. I also describe in my book an incident which describes Nella, but it also describes the situation in Poland at the time. Uh, one summer when we were uh, lodging in the foothills of the Tatras, uh, in a guest house with a fiercely anti-Semitic landlady. The landlady said to Nella, that child, is she Jewish? And Nella said, no, of course not. Okay, so on her walks, on our walks in the woods, Nella taught me the Polish Catholic prayers. And I had to recite them back to her. And as we walked, looking for mushrooms, I recited the Catholic prayers. I was good in those days at learning um, verse and prose and poetry. Probably not so good at it now. But I didn't mind. I thought that was a good idea to recite some prayers. Anyway, at night, when we came back to the landlady's house, Nella bid me to kneel at the foot of the bed and recite those prayers that children have to recite on going to bed. And she opened the door wide and I recited them loud. And the landlady heard them and I, we never had any trouble after that. And uh, strangely enough, of course, she uh, never asked me to recite prayers when we came back to Krakow. So that's just a little snapshot of Nella. In the prologue of Never Tell Anyone You're Jewish, at page three, you write, and I quote, At last, we are finally free, said my mother. But you must never, ever tell anyone you're Jewish. I leaned over the rail of the cross channel ferry that was bringing us to England in the churning waters, a piece of detached seaweed danced, tanned, and then floated past. I remember feeling like that seaweed, infinitesimal, 
uprooted, adrift. Maria, please dramatize for us as best as you can the feeling you allude to and what exactly did it mean to you in that particular moment as a child? Well, it's interesting that both you and I uh, were uprooted at an early age and you'll probably agree that this has consequences. Anyway, uh, the injunction, um, my mother's injunction, never tell anyone you're Jewish, never tell anyone about my past and heritage. Um, it was very isolating because being Jewish was what I felt with every cell in my body. Jew, Jew, Jid, Zidufka. Those were the first words I learned as a child. I didn't understand what they meant, but I knew they were very important. For us, it seemed that Jewishness was not defined by Judaism, about which I knew very little, but by the Holocaust. And this injunction to never tell anyone, coming to a new place in a new language, never tell my peer group? How was I going to make friends if they didn't know this very important thing about me? So I felt uprooted and adrift, and I anticipated a new friendless future. Anyway, I consoled myself as 11-year-olds might. I consoled myself looking forward to three things in no apparent order. To eat a banana, to meet my uncle, and to see a working television. Uh, these are three things, three, three new experiences I was looking forward to. Again, at page three of your book, you write, and I quote, when I read Anne Frank's diary to my grandchildren and they watched the film of the boy in striped pyjamas, they said, how sad, without realising the scale of the operation. I was recently outraged to find out that my granddaughter's GCSE history curriculum, while concentrating on the 20th century, seems to have somehow missed out the Holocaust altogether. How crucial is it that history be told truthfully? And why do you believe that the world is ready to hear about your family's history? I think that um, history syllabus, uh, at least here in the UK, it's full of kings and queens and military battles. Um, and even now, the Scottish uh, history curriculum, both at National Fives, uh, which is equivalent to GCSEs, and Hires, which is a sort of pre-A level qualification, um, misses out the Holocaust altogether. The Holocaust is airbrushed out. Why? Um, I don't know why. Next week, 
Um, I am honored to speak at an awards ceremony at which awards will be handed out to 12 special schools that teach the Holocaust. And they teach it with the help of a special organization called Vision School Scotland. But what I don't understand is why these schools have to be singled out. Why is Holocaust education not mandatory in Scotland and the world over? Um, it's, it's a puzzle. Is it Israelophobia? Maybe. Anyway, since writing my book, I've been repeatedly told uh, by readers that they really didn't know about the Holocaust. They knew that six million Jews died and what happened to Anne Frank, but not what really happened. Obviously, they didn't go to these special vision schools. Uh, I think the Holocaust, this one, uh, my Holocaust, one might say, uh, the one that happened during the Second World War, uh, the main one, um, needs to be talked about. And maybe because people don't, that other Holocausts uh, have followed. Regarding teaching history truthfully, you said the following on page 155 of your book, and I quote, The name Belzec seems to be relatively unfamiliar to my friends, hardly any of whom had ever heard of it. The few nights my father spent at Auschwitz never failed to impress. But when I tell people of my grandmother's death in Belze, their eyes glaze over with incomprehension. One of the reasons for Belzec's obscurity is because almost no one survived to tell the tale. Another reason might be because it was never liberated by the British. Along with Chilmuno, Sobibor, and Treblinka, Belzec was liberated by the Soviets in the summer of 1944. But by then, there was nothing much left to liberate. The 500,000 Jews it had processed were dead, and the killing machinery had already been dismantled. Maria, Please discuss with us Belzec's special status as a factory for killing. Furthermore, how crucial is it that we are aware of these events? Well, Belzec, um, or Belzec, as it's pronounced in Polish, was a factory and death was its product. Um, interestingly, music played at Belgians as people were led to their deaths because music or music helps productivity on a factory floor. And yes, when I say the name to people, some think I've made a mistake. Do I mean Belson? No, no, I don't mean Belson. Belson was another camp and there were no gas chambers there. 
But the reason that nobody's heard of Belgets is because it was small and highly effective, death factory. Uh, it was small because people didn't go there to sleep. They went there to die. Um, half a million, half a million is roughly like the population of uh, inner Edinburgh where I live. Um, all murdered in 10 months. If you do this calculation, that's like three per minute, three per daylight minute. Three per daylight minute. We would do well to remember that when tempted to apply the word genocide to today's situation. Anyway, the camp Belgez was dismantled and its use as a murder factory disguised in 1943. All that was left were the bones, including those of my grandmother and her foster child, Romek, a little four-year-old boy that she had been looking after. I like, I, I, it, it's unthinkable, but in my research, and there was so little to research, really, uh, I repeatedly accompanied my grandmother and little Romek on that one-way journey. Turning back to page 150, you write thus, and I quote, While she waited to be propelled onto the train, she did what she was always good at. She read the guards' faces. There were two of them, she thought, who looked more kindly than the others. She smiled at them, and she thought she detected a flicker of response. She was almost on the steps of the train when a cart full of skeleton-like prisoners drew up. As the guards started to load this human cargo onto the train, the attention of the Gestapo men was diverted and in the commotion that followed the guards, unintentionally, or maybe intentionally, let her slip through. Unnoticed, her star of David torn and discarded, she walked feigning confidence across the platform and slipped into the station cafeteria. But she was not entirely unobserved because standing at the door was an elderly waitress who said to her softly in Polish, I know where you have come from. Discreetly, she laid my mother into a dark corner of the cafe, placed a cup of coffee before her and a cigarette between her fingers. Then lifting from her own neck a chain with a medallion of the Virgin Mary and the baby, she hung it on my mother's neck. Hold on to her tight, she said. She will save you. So, when the Gestapo came in, there she was, a saved Christian girl, a friend of the waitress. 
please talk to us about the power of human love. And while you are at it, kindly talk to us about your mother's kindly German boss at the glass factory. Yes, so um, this is a really good news story because my mother survived. My grandmother didn't, but my mother survived, and this is how she survived. And this pivotal moment in my mother's story has stayed in my mother's mind and also my own as proof that goodness and humanity do and can exist even in the midst of hell. The waitress's act, kindness, humanity, probably gave her the strength to carry on in the dreadful days that followed this incident. So the waitress was one honourable, good person to whom my mother owes her life. But the other person who is instrumental in enabling my mother's escape was her German boss. Uh, her German boss was a Volksdeutscher, which means um, he was native German, but living in Lvov. He spoke both German and Polish. His name was Dr. Bauer. And Dr. Bauer was the director of the glass factory where my mother worked. And he had always been very kind to my mother. Uh, once when the Nazis came to the factory looking for her, uh, looking for Jews, because very often uh, Jews that were engaged in, uh, in, in factories um, were winkled out on special days to perform some hard labor, like scrubbing floors or something. Uh, anyway, um, Bauer, Dr. Bauer didn't know why she was being, uh, uh, why they were looking for her. So he hid her in some uh, packing cases. So my mother knew that Dr. Bauer was a good man. And when she was rounded up uh, by the Nazis on 10th of August, 1942, she thrust a note into the hands of a passing stranger. And on the note, she had written a message to Dr. Bauer. Please come and save me. I've been taken. Well, miraculously, uh, the stranger delivered the note and Dr. Bauer did turn up at the railway station looking for her. Um, in those days, uh, Nazis, and he was meant to be one, um, wrote, wore their insignia on their uniforms, and there he was with all his Nazi insignia um, parading up and down the street uh, platform uh, looking for her, and he found her. And then he led her back to Viv to a safe house. Of course, both these people, the waitress and Dr. Bauer, uh, the German boss, could have paid for their actions with their lives. Um, and what this story illustrates is that survival depended on random acts of kindness, as well as happenstance luck. And of course, one mustn't forget my mother's strength of character.
On page 166 of the book, you write, and I quote, The only story that remains from that particular train journey is of a child who screamed and screamed, as children do, particularly when they are hungry. My mother's blouse had a breast pocket in which she had hidden a sugar cube. She took it out and offered it to the hungry child. I remember that story because that's how she was. Kind, always generous, always giving. My son, Martin, when he read this bit in draft form, said, Yes, of course. Now I understand. That's why she always stole a few sugar cubes from cafe sugar bowls and stole them away for later. Maria, please tell us about your most treasured memories of your mother. Yes, I pinpointed that memory uh, because she was always generous and warm and easily moved to tears by films and books. And by the way, my son Martin uh, doesn't like that quote because of the word stole. Uh, but it would have been too long-winded to say she appropriated them because she had not used any when they were offered. So, I, well, she stole a few sugar cubes. Um, but I suppose my most treasured memories of my mum were with my children and grandchildren because she loved them so much. She loved us all so much. On page 216 of your book, you quote your mother when she wrote the following in her memoir, and I quote, It was heartbreaking when a day came when I suddenly realized that my country does not want me anymore, that people look upon me as a foreigner. Ten years after the defeat of Hitler, Ten years after six million Jews went into the gas chambers, a new wave of Nazism was sweeping the country. Now, most Poles, even those who were not anti-Semitic, expected us to leave. Friends and colleagues watched me with sympathy, but their eyes asked, why are you still here? Nobody ever said, why should you go? You belong here with us. Now, I don't mean to minimize the Holocaust, but if I may, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. The United Kingdom is having difficulty understanding immigration, which many may rightfully refer to as a Pandora's box following the Brexit referendum result in 2016. Maria, why shouldn't a proud native Englishman, especially an Anglo-Saxon Englishman whose ancestry may be traced back thousands of years into history, 
exercise his democratic will to decide the fate of the unfortunate sojourners, people who simply don't fit. Why shouldn't a sojourner be sent back to wherever his ancestors came from, to his ancestral home? <laughs> oh, devil's advocate, indeed. <clears throat> um, well, you know, um, we're all from Africa. Did you know that? 150,000 years ago, we all left Africa. Maybe we should all go back to Africa, huh? Ah, I forgot. We can't because it's getting to be too hot there. Huh? Uh, and while we're on Africa, what about Rwanda? We're told it's a nice place. And then in the next sentence, we're told that Rwanda is to act as a deterrent. Well, if it's a nice place, how can it be a deterrent as well? Um, seriously, um, of course, I'm, I, I was welcomed to this country as an immigrant, and I would like to welcome other immigrants. And um, human history is that of migration. Migration increases the all-important diversity, which serves as the raw material for adaptation. And diversity makes us, our communities stronger. We don't really want all to bring the same skills to the party. We want different skills represented in a community. And in my experience, migrants are proud, resilient, people with the nous and experience to make the UK a better place. However, the trouble is, I think, as you mentioned, that the government, at least the British government, is sending negative messages about refugees. So I fear that even those who have managed to get here legally will be treated, as you put it, as unfortunate sojourners in their new communities. And that's something that I find very concerning. The title of our podcast is Genocide. Why it is important to bear witness. On October 7th, 2023, Palestinian militant groups led by Hamas, launched a coordinated surprise terrorist attack on Israel, killing more than 1,200 Israelis and foreigners. Many thousands of Palestinians have also perished since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. On November 11, 2023, Professor Jensen Stanley, a professor of philosophy at Yale University, published an opinion piece in The Guardian in which he wrote thus, and I quote, To my fellow Jewish people, the actions of the State of Israel are being committed in the name of our preservation worldwide. It is incumbent on those of us who are Jewish to clearly and openly call for a halt 
to Israel's assault on Gaza. If we do not succeed in stopping the bombing, our children and grandchildren are at risk of inheriting a double identity, not just as targets of mass killings of civilians, but also as those who stood by when mass killings were committed in their names. Maria, how important is it to testify to the truth in the context of a podcast theme? And what, in your opinion, will it take to break the logic of an eye for an eye, that is, bit swords into plowshares in the context of the long-running conflict between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs? Well, you can be sure that nobody is committing mass killings in my name. Uh, like Professor Stanley, and I have his uh, report here, his, his article here, uh, I want an immediate ceasefire and all the killings to stop. Um, but I do understand that one person's day of independence is another person's Nakba day, and one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. I get that. It's an impossible situation initiated more than a hundred years ago when one country promised another the land of a third. However, my book is not about Israel, but about the Holocaust and the truth of the Holocaust um, should not be minimized by what's happening now. Even if the Holocaust was once seen to be the raison d'etre for Israel's existence. Now, tomorrow, the 27th of January, we celebrate Holocaust Memorial Day in Britain. Uh, and it commemorates this year the 79th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Now, I first visited Auschwitz when I was nine years old. I was with my father. Nine is far too young to go to Auschwitz, by the way. I, I went with my father as a small child, and um, I was overcome by the scale of it and by the effect that the visit was having on my father, his first since he was a prisoner there. Anyway, um, Tomorrow we uh, have Holocaust Memorial Day, but round about the Holocaust Memorial Day, all this week and next, there have been a number of events connected with it in Edinburgh. Um, I've been to a few at the Scottish Parliament and uh, one at the university and one in the city chambers. And do you know, both uh, Edinburgh Council and the university have vetoed this year any banners or posters about it. Hmm. I suppose they're scared that they'd be um, graffiti or uh, defaced or uh, incite protest. Uh, but I'm devastated to see that the Holocaust, which is so important to know about, is now losing the call that call on the world's sympathy.
what's one piece of advice you can share with our listeners? <laughs> well, it's a long one. As Primo Levi, the Auschwitz survivor and Nobel laureate said, it happened, therefore it can happen again. So I think the take home message from my family's story and my book is that both the victims and the perpetrators were ordinary people. My mother tended to uh, think about people in a dichotomous way, good and bad, victim, survivor. I don't. Uh, I adopt the sort of shades of grey philosophy. During the war, when times were hard, Poles denounced Jews, Ukrainians denounced Jews, even Jews denounced Jews. Good people are capable of bad acts when times are hard. Remember that if you denounced a Jew, if you denounced a Jew, you got a reward of money, sometimes, or food, or both, which would allow you to feed your own family for another week, another month. It's worth it. When times are hard, and unfortunately I think times, hard times are coming by a combination of environmental degradation and overpopulation and climate change, we're going to be facing hard times. And as resources are depleted, there'll be more wars and bad things happen when human nature is challenged with difficult times. So uh, I don't feel terribly optimistic. I know that for you, Stephen, faith has helped you throughout your life. I maybe don't have that. I don't have what Dawkins would call a gene for God, or maybe it is that God died in Auschwitz. I don't know. But what I've always done is I've always tried to instill in my children and my students a sense of awe, a sense of awe and wonder in the living world. And I also taught them the golden rule, which is to treat others as you want, would want to be treated yourself, and to abhor discrimination of any sort on race and religion. Because as a biologist, as I've already said, I celebrate diversity within and between species. That sense of awe is what keeps me going. And our species, you know, Homo sapiens, you know what it means? It means the wise guy. Homo sapiens, the wise guy. Would not have been able to adapt to changing climates, new diseases, if we had not been diverse. So... We need to stay wise. Thank you. And finally, Maria, please advise our listeners where they may find your book, Never Tell Anyone You're Jewish. Well, you can order it from any bookshop. Um, might take a while to come. Uh, or you can order it for, um, from Amazon. And if you've got Amazon Prime, it comes tomorrow. Um, if all fails, all else fails, email me. You can find my email on the university website. Dr. Maria Chamberlain, thank you very much for being a guest on this podcast. 
Well, thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a, an honor and a delight. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Kangasa Challenge in partnership with Democracy in Africa. Democracy in Africa is a platform dedicated to building a bridge between academics, policymakers, practitioners, and citizens. The second episode is entitled, Why Genocide is the Responsibility of the Entire World? An interview with Dr. Oba Makdoum, a comparative political scientist and associate professor at the London School of Economics Department of Government. The podcast will go live on April 8th, 2024. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by subscribing to, Com to Conversation with Stephen Kamgasa through your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Until next, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>